Hello! Welcome to Secrets of Saturn. I am Jason Lindgren, your host. On this episode, we welcome back Mark Devlin, DJ, author, and all-around awesome guy. I'm pleased to be able to call him a friend of mine. And as a lot of you may know, we actually shared the stage together at the Shoot the Moon NYC event back on October 20th of 2019. On this episode, we are going to be discussing the James Bond franchise, both the novels and the film series. And Mark is extremely well-versed in the James Bond franchise, and we're going to be really going into some good details about it then and now. So I hope you enjoy this different take on James Bond 007. Mark, welcome back. Thanks for having me back, man. And thank you for the opportunity to talk about something other than the manipulations of the music business. I do enjoy getting into other subjects. I can talk about other things. And sometimes it does get a bit tedious going over the same old stuff time and time again. So I'm happy we're talking about something different here today. Yeah, you do a lot of that and you do it extremely well. Part of what you do is picking up on the late, great Dave McGowan's work. And I'm so happy that that's happening because the book that he put out, Weird Scenes Inside the Canyon. Weird Scenes Inside the Canyon. It was a game changer for sure. Totally, totally great stuff. And I'm so glad to see you're taking that and then, of course, adding your great work into that as well. So great job as always with that. Well, thank you. But yeah, let's talk about some agenda that's been going around for decades. A lot of people think agenda is just going on in the most recent years. And of course, it's gotten really, really bad with a lot of the main intellectual properties, as I've been discussing a lot with our friend Wayne McCroy. But as we're going to see with the work Mark is going to break down for us, we're going to talk about the 007 series, the books, and then, of course, the movie franchise that is still going to this day. And uh, we're up to, what, 26 films, somewhere around there? Something like that, yeah. We're about to say goodbye to another James Bond because Daniel Craig is retiring from the role after this. And who knows where they're going to take it next. But uh, where would you like to start, Mark? I'm guessing with Ian Fleming himself, the author, creator of James Bond 007, the character, and a bunch of novels that later got used in all of the films. So take it away, my friend. Well, yeah, we should certainly get into Ian Fleming. Maybe I'll just start by talking a bit about how I got into James Bond, which was probably around the time that you were lapping up Doctor Who and Star Trek and all this stuff. Uh, I was probably getting captivated by James Bond. This is going back to uh, the 1980s, I guess, uh, probably from the very early 80s. And they used to uh, put James Bond movies on TV on Sunday evenings over here on ITV. There's something about Sunday evenings, you know, because... Earlier on, you always used to get uh, Pick of the Pops, the chart show between five and seven on a Sunday. And I've told the story before about how I always used to get given a bath on Sunday evenings and my mum would have the radio on in the bathroom and it would be the chart show playing. So from a very young age, I was exposed to uh, all this pop music and that is what made me a music fan. And eventually, of course, that's what got me on the path to the sort of research and the work that I do now. And then a couple of hours later on a Sunday evening, around about 7.30, I think it was, ITV would often put on James Bond films. And that's what uh, captured my imagination when it came to the character of James Bond. And I can remember I would go to school on a Monday morning and everything that I'd seen in these movies would still be in my mind. And I'd start imagining I was James Bond. 
I know this is very sad. <laughs> this is what you do when you're about 12 or 13 years of age. So I would kind of carry myself like James Bond and try and adopt some of his mannerisms. And it usually worn off by Monday lunchtime, you know, but that was the ritual that took place. So I got into the films that way. When I was around 12 or 13 years of age, there was this hardcore group of us in my class at school that were into the James Bond novels. These were the original books by the creator, Ian Fleming. And the books are very different to the films, at least from the 1970s onwards. So with some of the early Sean Connery films, the uh, screenplay follows the plotline of the novel fairly closely. But by the time Roger Moore had been brought in in the 70s, the films got larger than life, big budget. They were responding to cultural trends that were going on at the time, and they just got further and further away from the original stories. So there was this small group of lads in my class that were into the Fleming novels because they were very gritty, very raw, lots of sex, lots of violence. And they were very mature. They were books for an adult audience. So, of course, at 12, 13 years of age, we thought we were really cool because we were reading these very adult, very grown-up Ian Fleming novels. There was a little fan club that sort of grew up around that. And James Bond is how we're entrained to think of the Secret Service, the intelligence communities. His character gets across the idea that these institutions are there to keep us safe from threats to our well-being. <laughs> and he's this very patriotic, selfless fellow that is willing to sacrifice his own life to keep everyone safe from all these dastardly villains that just want to harm us. He's serving his country. He's serving his queen, which, of course, is subtly reinforcing the validity of royalty. And one of the original Fleming books and the films was titled On Her Majesty's Secret Service. So uh, I bought into this early on because when you're 12 or 13, you don't know about culture creation and social engineering and mind control and all this. So for many, many years, I just had this idea of James Bond being this gallant hero that went all around the world foiling these supervillains and their plans to destroy the world. And that's how they want you thinking of these people. It would be the same thing with the CIA, of course. And actually... Bond has a friend in the CIA by the name of Felix Leiter, who appears in many of the stories. And he always plays second fiddle to Bond, you know, but he often supports him in his various missions. And so Felix Leiter is similarly portrayed as a good guy who's out to save the world from all the villains. So that's the impression that you get of the CIA as well. Mark, was he in the novels, that character? Because I certainly remember him from the films, but I've only read a little bit of short stories of the original Ian Fleming writings. Yeah, Felix Leiter was in the novels. He appears in the first one, Casino Royale, and you get to hear how Bond becomes an associate of his. And then in the second novel, Live and Let Die, he gets eaten by a shark. And miraculously, he survives. He gets a, an arm bitten off and a leg bitten off, but he survives this somehow and he appears in future stories. So Felix Leiter pops up in many of the books and many of the films. He's always been portrayed by different actors, but we've got the current guy that plays him, Jeffrey Wright, this black actor. And he's about to portray Leiter for the third time in the new film that's due to come out called No Time to Die. And apparently that's due for release in March or April. So we're very close to that. So that's Felix Leiter. So I guess we shouldn't be too surprised at the way that Bond is portrayed as this selfless hero, given that so much of his character is comprised of Ian Fleming himself and experiences that he went through and some of his background. So Ian Lancaster Fleming, 
born into an aristocratic family in 1908. So he was educated at Eton and Sandhurst, just like Bond. So Eton is this very prestigious, exclusive public school. A lot of the politicians go there. A lot of the elite types, in inverted commas, go to Eton to get their education. And from there, they usually go to Oxford or Cambridge University. And he also went to Sandhurst Military College, which is where you know these army types go to get their indoctrination as well. So Ian Fleming became attached to naval intelligence during World War II. So he actually got involved in Intel himself, and he reportedly worked for a time alongside Alistair Crowley. Ever heard of him before? <laughs> so Crowley was also an Intel asset quite late on in his life, and Fleming is alleged to have been Crowley's handler for a short while. And actually, Ian Fleming paid homage to Alistair Crowley in his very first Bond novel, Casino Royale, which came out in 1952, because he gave the physical characteristics of Crowley to the first Bond villain, a guy by the name of Le Chiffre, which means the cipher or the symbol in French. So when you read that novel, you hear that Le Chiffre was this big sort of bulky bear of a man with big bold head and very piercing eyes. And these are all characteristics that Crowley had. So he sort of imbued the first villain in the Bond stories with those. Fleming also included many of his own intel missions into Bond's past in the books. So certainly when you hear Bond reminiscing about things he did in the past, those are actual escapades that Fleming was involved with. And Fleming was, by all accounts, a notorious womanizer. He got married at the age of 42 hmm. to the wife of Lord Rothermere, who was the proprietor of the British Daily Express newspaper at the time. And reportedly, he'd been having an affair with this guy's wife for some time, and it was discovered. And in the end, he thought, oh, well, hell, we might as well just get married. But prior to that, he was a very well-known womanizer, heavy drinker, heavy smoker, but of very sophisticated brands. So, you know, the martini, uh, shaken, not stirred, the cocktail that Bond <laughs> likes, that was a favorite of Fleming's. Particular brands of cigarettes, you know, Bond would only be seen smoking certain cigarettes, and that comes down to Fleming's own personal taste as well. And it seems Fleming's love of cigarettes was quite deadly for him in the long run because he died at the age of 56 in 1964, of smoking-related lung cancer or lung disease. So uh, that wasn't exactly a ripe old age for an aristocratic elite type to have lived to. So he only got to see three of the Bond films being made with Sean Connery before he passed away. So a lot of Bond comes from Fleming himself. But then we get his code number, 007, and that is derived from Sir John Dee. This is the wrong courtier of Queen Elizabeth I going all the way back to the 1500s. There was a couple of guys that she kept close at hand as advisors and spiritual guides and such. And one of them was Sir John Dee. And his code name going all the way back those several centuries was 007. He was an occultist. He was a ceremonial magician. And so Fleming seems to have been paying tribute to Sir John Dee in attributing that number to Bond as well. So there are some occult aspects to his character which crop up from time to time. But I'll give you the opportunity to jump in there if there's anything you want to ask or any comments you want to make there. Well, I think we should set up what exactly we're talking about here. And it's a time period where the Cold War is front and foremost in the news. It's what's on people's minds. We're talking about the Western countries against the Soviet Union, Soviet Russia, all that. So the era that James Bond was created in 
is very different than how it's portrayed today in any of the contemporary movies, anything from the mid-90s on, really. It's no longer about the Soviet Union being the enemy or communism being the enemy. It's these kind of crazy, kooky, supervillains, mad scientist kind of characters. Right. Well, the films very much reflect the decades in which they were made. And this ties into the series that you did with Crow on your shows over there, where you're looking at how the agendas seem to change with every new decade in terms of what gets pushed. So if you look at the early Bond films, the first one was Dr. No, which came out in 1962, starring Sean Connery, who was an unknown actor at the time. And Fleming was still writing the books at the time they started making the films. So that was the first one. And so through the 60s, there was a lot of Cold War paranoia. And the villains were always the Russians, which reflected the kind of mindset of the general public at the time, who were still being entrained to be very nervous and paranoid of communism and the Russians. So that's what you find early on. Mark, before we go on, in your opinion, having read a lot of the original Ian Fleming's material, or maybe you've read all of it, is Sean Connery an accurate or at least a reasonably accurate portrayal of James Bond from the Ian Fleming point of view? Was he a good choice to do the character as portrayed in the novels? I would say he was, all apart from the Scottish accent. Although, when you look into Bond's ancestry, the books tell you that he had a Scottish father, Andrew Bond, and a Swiss mother, Monique Delacroix. So he was part Scottish, but with all the other actors apart from Connery, he's spoken with this sort of stiff upper lip, plum in mouth, eaten English accent, as Fleming himself did, this public school accent. So Connery, I would say, had the character down to a T, all apart from the broad Scottish accent. He certainly looked a lot like him. You get a physical description of Bond in the books. And he's kind of tall and lithe and he's got the dark hair like Connery and his features are are very similar to him. He certainly looks a lot more like Bond than Roger Moore or Daniel Craig did. So I would say he was a pretty good choice. So the books started in 1954, which was even more thickly steeped in Cold War paranoia, given that it was only a few years after the, the end of the Second World War. And then the films came along in the 60s and they kind of continued that. So you had this organization in the books known as Smirsch which is derived from a couple of Russian words, shmiert shpionum, which means death to spies. So this was the original super criminal organization that Bond was up against, but it was basically a Russian state institution. And then later on in the books, and pretty much from the start in the films, Smirsch kind of morphs into Spectre, which is this international criminal syndicate with Ernst Stavro Blofeld at the helm. So Blofeld is the archetypal supervillain in the Bond stories. And there have been many uh, mimickings of Blofeld over the years, all the way down to the Austin Powers movie, where he's kind of parodied by Dr. Evil. But uh, in many other sort of non-comedy films, Blofeld has been treated as this real archetype of a a dastardly supervillain hell-bent on world destruction. So that's the 60s. Then in the 70s, Roger Moore took over the role. And as you've discussed before, the 70s was a very different decade to the 60s. A lot of programming, a lot of mind control took place in the 60s. By the 70s, it had kind of become more refined. It thinned out more. In the films, what we find is a lot more sex, a lot more tongue-in-cheek sort of double entendres. So Roger Moore played the character for laughs to a very large extent. You never really felt that Roger Moore's character was in danger. 
whenever he gets into some kind of hairy situation, you know he's just going to get out of it with a quip, with a one-liner. Whereas when, in the Connery films, you really felt that he was in danger at certain points. You know, it's a lot more convincing in that way. So Roger Moore played him a lot more larger than life. And by the time we get round to Moonraker in 1979, all similarity to the earlier stories has gone, not least in the plot. Then we went through the 80s. The 80s wasn't a great decade for the films because Roger Moore left after a view to a kill. He looked incredibly ancient in that film. He's creaking around. Looks like he should be in a wheelchair. Then they bring in Timothy Dalton for a couple of films who doesn't make a great impression. And then there's a big gap from 89 to 95. And then Pierce Brosnan is brought in to play Bond from 95 onwards. And by the 90s, you find that the Russians are no longer the villains. And this reflects what's going on in society, of course, with the fall of communism and the coming down of the Berlin Wall in 1989 and all this. By 95, nobody's really talking about the Russians anymore. That seems to be a threat that's been removed and people are looking elsewhere for their villains. You don't actually get any Islamic fundamentalists, surprisingly enough, in Bond films. You don't really get any jihadists of the sort of Al-Qaeda ilk cropping up. I don't know if that was a measured kind of tactic, but you get all kinds of other villains apart from Russians in the 90s. And then as the films go into the noughties, Daniel Craig takes over the role. And in line with the way popular culture has gone, the way music has gone, the way TV shows have gone, the films become more sophisticated, more ironic in inverted commas, and a lot darker, much, much darker. So with Daniel Craig, there's none of the laughs and the one-liners that Roger Moore had and Pierce Brosnan very much carried on. Bond's become this very complex, introspective character. It's similar to what they did with the Batman movies. As that franchise went on, the character of Batman, Bruce Wayne, became more and more dark and complex and sinister. And so we get this with Daniel Craig's Bond. You know, he's this dangerous kind of character. He's got self-doubts. He's not the obvious hero that previous Bonds were. You get to find out his flaws, his foibles. You get to realize that he has faults just like the rest of us. So he's portrayed in a very different way. So it's interesting to look at how the films have evolved through the decades. The books themselves were published from 1952. Then Fleming died in 1964. He had a couple of books in the can that they put out after his death. And then an author by the name of Robert Markham, or his name was Kingsley Amis, writing as Robert Markham, put out a book called Colonel Sun. And that was pretty much the end of the original canon of Bond novels. So they ran in the 50s and 60s, but the films have come all the way up to present day. And anyone that's seen the Daniel Craig ones will be aware that they are very different to what went before. And we have this new one due for release in a few months. And who knows what's going to go on after that? Because Daniel Craig has mentioned that that's going to be his last outing as Bond. Whether they find a new actor or whether they retire the franchise remains to be seen. But I guess it's such a money spinner that they won't be doing the latter. Right. I am very curious to see what they're going to do. Maybe they want to wait and see just how well this one does. There's been a lot of backlash already. And from what I understand, they went back and did reshoots and retooled. It's No Time to Die is the new one, right? That's what it's called, yeah. Which is very similar to Die Another Day, actually, which is one of the previous titles. <laughs> yeah, it kind of sounds like stereotypical modern Bond titles, honestly. It really does. I mean, they ran out of books years ago. Right. They ran out of original Fleming novels. They actually started using his short stories 
So he put out a book, For Your Eyes Only, was a collection of five short stories. And they've taken every one of those and done them to death. And then he put out Octopussy in the Living Daylights as a collection of three short stories, and they've done those to death. So now they're on to manufacturing titles because they've got no original Fleming material to go back to. Before we move forward, did Ian Fleming have anything to do with the original films? Did he have any say in how they were done or even set up? Did he contribute anything? Because obviously the flavor of those 60s films, the Sean Connery films, did indeed have a very different feel to them than anything that came later. Yeah. As far as I know, he didn't have any creative input into the films. There are photographs of him on the film sets just coming along to see what's happening. But it was very much the product of uh, these two producers, Harry Saltzman and Albert R. Broccoli, who produced all the films up until Saltzman left in the 70s. And then Broccoli did it on his own. And then his son took over, or his stepson, Michael G. Wilson and Barbara Broccoli. So as far as I know, they're still the executive producers. So they've kept it in the same family all this time. But Fleming didn't really have any creative input into the films. And interestingly, after he died in 1964, the plot lines of the movies started deviating a lot from the original Fleming stories. So they really bore no relation to it after that. I just wanted to pick up on something I mentioned earlier about how Bond is portrayed as this selfless, patriotic hero, you know, and Felix Leiter of the CIA is portrayed in the same way. And isn't it interesting when you actually get down to the research of the likes that you and I do and the shows that we appear on, of course, you realize that the intelligence services are there for the opposite reason (laughs) to the one that is presented to us in this satanically inverted society in which we live. So they're not actually there to keep us safe from harm. They, in many cases, are the ones creating the harm and putting us in danger. So there's multiple evidence to show that the likes of MI5 and the CIA are behind many of these false flag terror events, in inverted commas, that are used to instill fear in the public. And they usually end up installing draconian surveillance and control methods, and they take away our personal freedoms. So there's not much that's gallant and virtuous about that when you get down to the true nature of these agencies. And that's before you get into their involvement in the music industry, (laughs) as I do. And you find out that so many of these musicians that you've looked up to over the decades have family connections going into the CIA and other military uh, intelligence operations. So James Bond is portrayed as this hero. But when you actually get down to it, he's an order follower. He's someone that goes out there and kills people on someone else's say-so. He doesn't judge for himself whether it's right action to go and kill these people that he's been instructed to. He just takes the order and carries it out unquestioningly. Not much virtuous and gallant about that either, really, when you get down to it. And also, spiritually, I would say that's one of the worst states you can be in from a karmic point of view, when you've gone out there and killed people because somebody of a higher rank than you in office told you to do it. And I'm also reminded of a song by The Fugs. This came up in a a show that I did on Punk and New Wave a while back in my Good Vibrations series. It's a great song by The Fugs called CIA Man, which I'd not heard before somebody put me onto it. It's a great lyric in it. It goes, who can take the sugar from the sack, pour in LSD and put it back? Fucking A man, CIA man. (laughs) (laughs) 
So that's Felix Leiter for you. So I just wanted to make the point that although I was entranced and seduced and captivated by James Bond as a young lad, and the line that they used to use to market him was, James Bond is what every man wants to be and what every woman wants between her sheets, which is a pretty good tagline when you think about it. Yeah. So that's what I used to fall for. But I've done the research, I've grown up, I've matured, I've come to an acceptance of the way this world really is. And this is the truth of the matter. There is actually nothing gallant about James Bond. And it's devastating for people to hear that if they've grown up on the films and the books as I have. But that's the truth of the matter when it comes to the intelligence services and their true role. So Ian Fleming, of course, was part of the intelligence services in the UK. Yeah. And did a lot of work in the World War II era, right? Yeah, he was in naval intelligence in World War II. He was a commander in uh, the British Navy. And that's the rank that he ascribes to Bond. So Bond is described as Commander Bond. Mm -hmm. So again, it's just another aspect of Fleming, which he's put into that character. And he says he picked the name James Bond because he wanted a really ordinary, bland sounding name. He didn't want it to be outrageous or particularly memorable in any way. And Ian Fleming had this house in Jamaica, which he called Goldeneye. The film was named <laughs> after it. And he wrote all the books there. He would go there from January to March every year and tap away at his typewriter and churn out one of these new novels. He'd have it done by the end of March, usually. And then it would get published later in the year. And then the following year, he'd sit down at his typewriter and do the next one. And he had this book on his coffee table, so the story goes. And it was called Birds of the West Indies by an author it was called James Bond. Hmm. And he looked at it one day and thought, that's it. That's the name I'm looking for. It's plain. It's not particularly memorable. But at the same time, it has impact. That's the name I want for my character. So that's how James Bond got named. It's short but sweet, which makes the tagline Bond, James Bond, work very well. If it was some longer, complicated name, it would be a little wordy and just wouldn't have the same impact, I don't think. Sure. But I'm curious as far as what we do know of Ian Fleming, what was he really doing while he was an intelligence officer? Who was Ian Fleming really? And I'm assuming he was doing things to fight against fascism. Is that an accurate assessment? Well, that and against the Nazis and latterly against communism, I guess. He was involved in espionage activities and I guess we wouldn't get a lot of the fine detail of many of those, but it becomes an interesting question as to whether he decided to write the James Bond stories off his own back, and it was just a brainwave he had, and it was an idea to express himself creatively, or whether he was commissioned to put them out, whether there were other parties that said, what we need is a literary hero who is a representative of the Secret Service. And we want to put out the idea that this is an institution that people should respect and revere. And uh, James Bond is going to achieve that. I can't answer that question, but we can speculate on whether there were other interested parties that would like, would have liked a character like James Bond to be out there. It's interesting to think what the world would be like without James Bond. Just imagine if those films had never been made and those books had never been written and we were here in 2020 and there was no such character as James Bond. I think the world would be a very different place in terms of popular culture if he'd never been invented. Yeah, I agree with that totally. Though the entirety of the James Bond series paints the respective governments of Western society in a somewhat 
positive light. I think that's a pretty fair statement. And think about what impact, as you were just saying, that would have had decade after decade, especially now that we're in a time when people don't necessarily trust everything the government says. But back in the 50s and 60s, for the most part, people did. Coming off of the back of World War II, we were the good guys. We defeated the bad guys. So Ian Fleming, he was doing intelligence work to help defeat the bad guys. And the bad guys, of course, went from being the fascist Nazis to being the communist Soviets. Right. And, of course, the work he would have been doing was for the betterment of the good guys, the Western society. So, of course, having this character and these stories, whether they are based any way in reality, and actually we should address that in a moment, it paints the respective governments, the UK and the United States predominantly, mostly the UK, of course, in a fairly positive light that even though they do some things like killing people, they're doing it for the greater good. They're doing it for the protection of the good guys, right? That's the way it's always presented. Although, again, when we look at the way the films have evolved through the decades, we find that in more recent times with Daniel Craig's character, the films become much more critical of the Secret Service. So we learn from the movie Skyfall, which was the one before last, and we also learn this from the novels, actually, that Bond is an orphan. His parents were killed in a skiing accident, and so he got inducted into the service and it became kind of his surrogate parents, and particularly the character of M, who in the books is always a male, uh, retired Navy admiral. But in the latter films, M has been portrayed by Judy Dench. So we get the idea that heads of intelligence services don't necessarily have to be male in line with other sort of agendas. But there was actually the head of uh, British MI5, a woman by the name of Stella Rimington in the 90s. And Judy Dench's M is said to be based very strongly on her. But in the Daniel Craig movies, Judy Dench's M is portrayed very much as a kind of mother figure to Bond. He's got this unspoken familial sort of attachment to her. And when she dies in the movie Skyfall, you know, it's a very devastating personal blow to him because it's like one of his parents has been killed all over again. And she actually says in the movie, you know, the service likes orphans. They specifically sniff out orphans to bring into the service because they know that it's going to become like their parents because they don't have that thing in reality. So we learned that about it. And then in the same movie, you've got Javier Bardem's character, the villain, who is a former British intelligence agent who he feels got betrayed by M and was left to be tortured by enemy agents. So he's got this personal vendetta against both her and the service, and he's now out to destroy it. So he's presenting the alternative idea that the service isn't entirely moral and isn't entirely upstanding the way we've been trained to think of it as. He's highlighting its faults and its shortcomings. And for the first time, it's being portrayed in a not particularly flattering light. So again, that's a difference between the films that we've had in the noughties and the ones that we had in decades previous. And it's interesting to note how that ties in with societal programming generally, turning old sort of stereotypes on their head and introducing new ways of thinking. We've got all these social engineering agendas, whether it's new attitudes to transgenderism, transhumanism, veganism, even all these different agendas that are running. It's new ways of thinking of ideas that have always been thought of in a particular way since time immemorial. And it just reinforces that we live in changing times and they're very different to what went before. Right. Now, we should address that because this is actually quite important. And I think what 
caused the necessity for reshoots or retooling of the Bond film that's about to come out. As we've discussed so many times, there is a lot of agenda pushing these days. And I think we're finally starting to see a little bit of financial pushback where people are voting with their dollars. They don't really want this crap. Some people are still going to swallow anything that's thrown at them just because it's got the label on it. So if it's called Star Trek, they're going to watch it. If it's called Doctor Who, they're going to watch it. If it's called James Bond, they're going to watch it. That seems to be true with a certain section of their respective fandoms. But apparently when the idea got out that Bond was going to be a secondary character in his own film, and this black actress was going to be 007 way more than he was going to be 007, Apparently, from what I've heard, and I'm not sure if you've picked up on any of this either, but they had to do some reworking because people were like, no, not acceptable. And we're seeing similar things with Star Trek, Doctor Who, even the MCU, and Star Wars big time. We could even address that for a moment with this agenda pushing. People, I think, are getting sick of it finally. Because the latest film in the Star Wars series, which has been marketed as the last of the Skywalker saga, didn't perform anywhere near what you would think it would. Right. For instance, the movie Endgame did two billion plus, and The Rise of Skywalker barely did a little over a billion. And as we're recording this, it's already been out of a lot of theaters. I think we're only like five weeks in, something like that. And, you know, it just didn't get the reception that one would think it would get. And it's because the main character is basically a plank of wood. There's very little characterization there. There's no hero's journey. Like the things that you look for, that you get attached to in good storytelling has not been in this Disney sequel trilogy. And I think we're seeing that across the board. People are just getting tired of this agenda crap shoved down their throat The modern incarnations of Star Trek just aren't like the next generation and the original series. It's very, very different. Sure, it looks nice. It's got good money put into it for all the flashiness. The sets are great. The effects are great. The storylines aren't, and the characterizations are not. It doesn't feel like Star Trek to a lot of people. Same thing with Doctor Who. Doctor Who is actually at an all-time low. A lot of people weren't too thrilled with swapping the gender. I personally was completely against it. I just think if you want a female lead, create one. I remember you saying so. Yeah, don't take a male lead and switch it. Create one. What, can't a female character stand on its own? You have to take a male character that's been established for over 50 years and switch the gender? I think that's insulting to women, quite honestly. The thing that they accuse fans of being misogynist, I think that's misogynist behavior. Right. Make a female character, let the female character stand on its own merit. I think that's fair. But no, you took a male character, made it female, and then tried to shove that down our throats with a whole bunch of agenda on top of it. They didn't just flip the gender. They added in political messaging that has finally caught up with them. Doctor Who, as of last week of us recording this, has the lowest viewing figures since 1986. I would say that's some serious backlash. That's what got Doctor Who canceled at the end of the 80s. And the thing is, since this is being used as a political vehicle in the modern age, it's quite obvious that's what it is. It's not going to get canceled. They're just going to do more of the same. As a matter of fact, they're already doing another series that's in the works now that's more of the exact same. Same people running it, same people acting in it, writing everything. So they're not learning their lesson because they don't need to. 
The BBC is funded, as I think most people know, by what's called the TV license. And you could explain this better than I can. I just know the general notion behind it is that if you have a television, you pay the license fee. Those license fees go to make the programming. Goes to the BBC. That's right. Yep. So Doctor Who does not have to produce a profit like, say, let's just use Star Trek as an example. Star Trek is being made for a lot of money, and if money isn't coming back as a result of it, people in suits might start questioning what exactly is going on here. So I don't know if we're at a point, and this is something I bring up a lot to a lot of people, I don't know if we're at a point that money no longer matters at all, but I think to some people it must somewhat still be a concern. Because if you put $300, $400 million into a film and you make nothing, as a matter of fact, you go into the red, and this happens over and over and over again. I think some people might start getting upset at some point, even though we know the money's fake, even though we know that they're using these for agenda pushing. I would assume that these companies, to some degree or another, still have to function in the modern world and have to make money. And we're seeing failures. Doctor Who no longer has hardly any merchandise because nobody wants it. Nobody wants what they're selling with the Jodie Whittaker doctor. She's not the doctor. People just don't accept it. And on top of that, the stories suck. No one's going to be buying merchandise that's related to this iteration. It's just not the show that people remember. They used to make millions of dollars in the heyday of the modern Doctor Who on merchandising, especially once it hit in America. You're talking about a lot of merchandising dollars coming in. And you know what I see now? There's no Doctor Who section anymore in Hot Topic. There's barely anything Doctor Who in Barnes & Noble booksellers. And I've checked place other places that would have the merchandise, and it's not there. It's just gone. No one cares anymore. It's over. They would have to do some radical retooling to get it back to the heyday of David Tennant and Matt Smith's runs. Star Wars is kind of having the same thing. It was at the highest point it probably ever was when The Force Awakens came out in... Uh, 2015, if I remember correctly. That movie made over $2 billion. They were riding on the nostalgia from the original trilogy people and the prequel trilogy people. The Force Awakens, which I thought was a terrible movie, but they all came out in droves to see it over and over and over again. And I saw the writing on the wall as soon as I saw that movie the first time. I thought it was boring. I could see the way they were setting it up. And it was just a rehash of the original 1977 film. And I called it as much back then. But the real backlash started with the next film in the Disney sequel, The Last Jedi, which was just absolutely dreadful writing. Again, flashy, looked great, but that's all it had. It was all style and no substance. And that's when the real backlash in the Star Wars universe started happening. And you had the problem, and I can't believe that a company would allow this to happen, but you had actually the people involved insulting fans over there not liking it. They lost a lot of credibility from that point onwards, and you're now seeing the results of that, where The Rise of Skywalker just isn't doing the money they would think that it would do. Well, I don't want to keep going on, Mark. What do you take of all that? Because we're going to tie this into the James Bond thing and why this new movie might have been retooled as a result of this kind of attitude. Right. Well, I can see you're very passionate about all this stuff. I've heard you on the show with Wayne uh, talking about all this. And yeah, you're absolutely right. Jodie Whittaker as Doctor Who doesn't work. Why? Because Doctor Who was originally created as a male character. So if they tried to insert a female James Bond at this point, it would be ridiculous. 
You don't want a female Sherlock Holmes. You don't want a male Miss Marple. You know, these characters are created for a reason by their creators because they have a vision in mind for them. So it's the same thing with all these rumors that we got a few years ago about there being a black James Bond. So is there anything wrong with a black James Bond on the surface of it? Well, not really. But when you examine the background of the literary character of James Bond, the way Ian Fleming intended him to be, he comes from this, you know, quite wealthy, well-to-do family. He was educated at Eton and Sandhurst, which are the reserves of almost exclusively white, wealthy families. So that's just who he is. That's what the character was. He wasn't a black guy. You don't get black guys attending Eton and Sandhurst to a very large extent. So what's so wrong with staying true to the original essence of the character? Would people be okay with a remake of the movie Shaft from the early 70s with Richard Roundtree, this black private eye, you know, if they cast a white dude as Shaft? (laughs) I think if they tried to do that, there would be a bit of an outcry and people would say, what the hell are you doing? Shaft is a black man. Well, James Bond is a white man. And that's just the way it is. So he shouldn't really mess with these things. It is social engineering at play. And I know you made the point in those shows you did that they, the controllers, seem to care less about making a profit now than they do about pushing agendas, which suggests that popular culture has always been primarily about pushing agendas and mind control and shaping attitudes and viewpoints more so than it has been about generating a profit. If they do turn a profit, it's a nice bonus to add into the bargain. But I think we're seeing this more and more now. The agendas are becoming more obvious and we can see what these vehicles are really being used for, whether it's films or TV shows or music or any other aspects of popular culture. I thought it might be good, Jason, to just look at some examples of placing the truth in plain sight and predictive programming that's been inserted into the Bond films over the years. Should we look at some of these? I love that idea. Let's go for it. Okay. Well, I've noted down a few here. Well, we've got a couple of Roger Moore movies, which came out in the 70s. The Spy Who Loved Me in 1977 and Moonraker in 1979. To a very large extent, the narratives of these two movies are clones of each other. <laughs> so in each case, you've got this supervillain. So in The Spy Who Loved Me, it's Carl Stromberg, played by Kurt Jurgens. In Moonraker, it's Hugo Drax, played by Michael Lonsdale. And they are effectively eugenicists. They are these dastardly villains who are hell-bent on controlling and dominating the rest of humanity. And they are all about establishing these super races, as they see it, of genetically engineered people who they see as, you know, kind of Aryan perfect in their genetics and superior to everyone else. Sounds very Nazi-esque. Yeah, it's a eugenicist's wet dream. So Stromberg has, uh, he's the shipping magnate, and he's managed to capture these two nuclear subs from the superpowers, the Western superpowers. And he plans to use these nuclear warheads against cities around the world and to establish this underwater community in this sort of glass dome thing under the ocean where he's going to breed, selectively breed, certain people with desired genetic traits. And when the time is right, they're then going to go forth and seed humanity and they're going to change the genetic structure of the human race. 
Then in Moonraker, you've got Hugo Drax, who wants to do pretty much the same thing, except he's doing it in space. So he's got this space station and he wants to target Earth with uh, these deadly biological weapons, this poison that he's cultivated from these rare poppies. And uh, he then plans to reseed humanity from space and they're going to come back to Earth and, you know, uh, repopulate when the time is right. So uh, it sounds like the likes of Bill Gates to me and what they're <laughs> trying to do with their depopulation programs and all of this and what Aldous Huxley and his like were, were into, you know, eugenicists and uh, Planned Parenthood, Margaret Sanger and all this. So there we were being told about these kind of plans back in the 1970s. And we got a glimpse into the mindset of the psychopathic power elite that we have, you know, sadly controlling things in these times. Another example would be, well, a more recent one would be in the movie Spectre. Bond gets injected with what is referred to as smart blood. So it's smart everything these days, the smart grid internet of things. And kind of tying into that, this movie came out in 2015. In order to keep tabs on him, because he's become a bit rogue and gone off script, you know, his employers want to know where he is at any given time. So they inject him with this smart blood, which has tiny nanoparticle RFID chips in it, and it communicates wirelessly, remotely, where Bond is anywhere in the world so they can keep an eye on him. And the whole plot of Spectre is about increased surveillance, state surveillance of the people. And there's this sort of moral argument raging as to whether this should be allowed or not, or whether it's got out of hand. So isn't that a kind of damning indictment of the type of society we now have, even down to referring to smart blood? A recurring one that we get throughout the canon of films is Q, the character of Q, who's been portrayed by different actors over the years. We've got a young, sort of nerdy Q at the moment, but for many years it was Desmond Llewellyn, this, this old guy. And he's always got these futuristic gadgets. And it kind of confirms that the Intel community has secret technology before it's released to the public. And they have stuff that we never get to hear about. So all the way back to the 1960s, a standard feature of the films would be Bond's briefing by Q, where he gets given his latest gadgets and uh, he gets out of many scrapes in that way. So Star Trek did a lot of this, didn't it? It had portrayals of mobile phones and technology such as this back in the 60s. And it kind of conveys that the program makers were in the know. They knew this stuff was coming. And it's the same thing with the Bond films. It's as if the makers of the films know that there's technology that we don't get told about that they're getting to use, or it's technology that we'll get to hear about in 20 or 30 years. And Mark, was the Q branch a thing in the novels and the short stories and all that? Did Ian Fleming create the Q branch originally, or is that a film thing only? No, that features in the novels. There is a Q branch of the British Secret Service, and there was a character who's known as Major Boothroyd. He's the original Q. That's how he appears in the books. So he's more embellished in the films, and he's made this sort of comical character towards the end, this dear old father figure to Bond. But there was an original Q. But was it a gadgets thing in the originals as well? Mm, not not really. There was some weaponry that he used to get out of things. So I think it's in the book. It's certainly in the film of From Russia With Love. The film came out in 1963. The book was 1958, I think. And there's a special suitcase that Bond is given. 
And it has 50 gold sovereigns in either side that he can use to bargain himself out of uh, sticky situations. But it's also full of weaponry. It's got concealed knives. And he uses this uh, concealed dagger to dispatch this villain that's trying to kill him. And I think you also have in the Bond novels uh, hidden, there's a tracker transmitter in the heel of his shoe. So he clicks the side of his shoe and the heel pops out and there's this little tracking device, this RFID device. And this was back in the late 50s for the Goldfinger uh, novel and in 1964 for the film. So way back then, you were getting gadgetry like that being presented. The other thing I wanted to mention, or one of the other things, is a very strange one. In the movie Diamonds Are Forever, which came out in 1971, it was Sean Connery's last film before he came back for Never Say Never Again. So it's his last regular film. And it's a very curious one because you've got this section where a large part of the film is set in Las Vegas. And then the action shifts to the desert of Nevada. So Bond is trailing this villain in a camper van as he drives out into the desert. And he enters what seems to be this uh, top secret military base. So immediately I get thoughts of Area 51 (laughs) and what we hear about that out there in Nevada. So then he descends several levels below ground, which ties in with what we hear about DOMS, deep underground military bases. And then he finds himself in this research facility, which the criminal cabal is running. And it's all to do with intercepting rockets, uh, intercepting satellites in space. So all that nonsense. But he discovers this facility. And when the uh, villains catch up with him and he has to make a run for it, you have this very bizarre sequence where he starts running across a film set. And on the film set, you've got NASA astronauts and they're faking the moon landings. (laughs) So you've got these guys on a film set with all the lighting and all the gantries and stuff. And they're acting like they're on the moon, moving all slow and stuff. And Bond runs across the film set being pursued (laughs) by these gunmen. So what the hell is that all about? And steals a moon buggy. Yeah, he does actually. Uh Uh-huh. He actually does. That seems to be a sly knowing nod from the program makers to let us know that the Apollo moon landings were bullshit. And at the time, they were still going on. So this film was released in 1971. So it's two years after the Apollo 11 mission. And they were still supposedly sending rockets up to the moon. And here we have this ridiculous sequence in a Bond film that appears to be saying, don't believe a word of it, folks. It's all BS. And in 1971, I don't think there were hardly anybody, if there were any at all, other than maybe the odd here and there, individuals saying, hey, I don't believe this. For the most part, I would say people completely believe this. That's right. In 1971, that's when the Apollos were still going on all the way up to Apollo 17. So yeah, this movie was in a year that Apollo missions were still occurring. That's right. And you'd have been hard pressed to find anyone back then that doubted the official story of most things because they had no reason to. They didn't know any better. Didn't have the internet. We didn't have conspiracy culture like we do now. You know, 99.9% of people or the vast majority of the general public just believed what they were told. You would only know any different if you were a part of it, if you were on the inside. So we get that through Diamonds Are Forever. Also in that same film, we've got Blofeld. I'll get on to Blofeld uh, some more shortly. Uh, But he's portrayed by Charles Gray in this film. And he's using plastic surgery to create clones of himself to throw his enemies off track. So nobody really knows if it's the real Blofeld or one of his doubles. So this brings to mind, you know, the use of doubles from the likes of Saddam Hussein and different world leaders. 
I do wonder, with my curious conspiratorial mind, whether there might be elements of the McCartney situation going on there, but I would, wouldn't I? <laughs> the situation with Paul McCartney, supposedly there being more than one of him, whether it was a case of him being replaced or whether it was a case of there always having been more than one of him. But I just wonder if that's a little clue. Paul McCartney actually did the soundtrack to Live and Let Die, which was Roger Moore's first Bond movie. Live and Let Die. Get it? <laughs> that was Paul McCartney's um, theme tune and George Martin scored the rest of that movie. Just to pick up on Blofeld, he reoccurs as Bond's nemesis in several of the stories. He's in three of the novels, many of the films. He's just been revived by Christoph Waltz. There were sort of intellectual rights issues which prevented the character of Blofeld from appearing for many, many years. And evidently, they were resolved just a few years ago. So the producers were able to bring back the character of Blofeld for these two Daniel Craig movies. But he really seems to represent a sort of New World Order oligarch, in my mind. He's hell-bent on control and domination. He's got this organization that he's put together, Spectre. And in the books and the films, you get these meetings of Spectre, and it's like this conglomeration of uh, different crime syndicates. And it strikes me as being very similar to the Bilderberg Group, or the Rand Corporation, or the Trilateral Commission, or one of these think tank organizations where they all get together and plan what they're going to do to the rest of us. So uh, a lot of similarities there in the way that Blofeld is presented. A very interesting story is On Her Majesty's Secret Service, because the issue of ancestry and family bloodlines comes into that. So you've got the character of Blofeld, who's become obsessed with tracing his genealogical bloodline. And he gets in touch with the College of Arms in London, because he's trying to prove that he's the rightful Comte de Bloville account. He's into heraldry and ancestry and all this. And Bond is able to infiltrate this clinic that he's operating in the Swiss Alps by posing as a representative of the College of Arms, who's come there to investigate his ancestry with him. So that's the plot line that runs through that story. And when you get again into the sort of work that I do, picking up on Dave McGowan's work, where you come to realize that family bloodlines are so important in terms of people that are served up to us in the public eye, you realize it's a very real thing. And here we were being told back in the 60s in this story that uh, ancestry and genealogy is very important. It's the key to so much. This institution that Blofeld is operating in the Swiss Alps is also steeped in mind control technology. So he's got this bevy of beautiful girls there that uh, are supposedly in this clinic to be cured of allergies that they're suffering. But what's actually happening is that late at night, Blofeld's voice is coming over this PA system and he's using deep hypnosis and NLP, neuro-linguistic programming, to mind control these girls and to put ideas into their subconscious minds in their sort of half-sleeping state. And then he's planning to send them out as assassins, ultimately. So we've got echoes of MKUltra there, the mind control program coming out of the CIA, and Manchurian candidate-style assassins, the likes of you know Mark Chapman and Sirhan Sirhan and all these people that seem to have undergone programming so they can be sent out there on some mission or other. So there certainly seem to be aspects of that cropping up in On Her Majesty's. What was the character of Blofeld like in the novels compared to how he's been portrayed in the movies in the various aspects? Because it seems like that's a kind of an archetype they played off in the later movies, 
the whole wealthy individual wanting world domination, to put it as boiled down as I can, mm. which is a concept that actually gets translated over even into kids' shows. The concept in G.I. Joe against Cobra is that this guy, Cobra Commander, whoever he really is, is a wealthy guy funding this massive army, <laughs> this organization that apparently has enough wealth and capability that it could stand up against the United States government. A little silly, but what was Blofeld like and what was Ian Fleming trying to portray, would you say, versus what we saw in the films? Well, he's portrayed very differently in the books to what we see in the film. So most people, when they think of the cinematic representation of Blofeld, they certainly think of a bold guy. And most people's thoughts probably go straight to Donald Pleasance in You Only Live Twice, which is the first time we see Blofeld's face. And that was the inspiration for the Mike Myers Dr. Evil character mm-hmm. in the Austin Powers movie, which is basically you know a ripoff, a piss take of, of Donald Pleasance's portrayal of Blofeld. In the next film, Blofeld is portrayed by Telly Savalas who is very different to Donald Pleasance, but he's also bold. So in the books, Blofeld isn't bold. He actually alters his appearance. So he first appears in Thunderball as this criminal mastermind behind the Spectre organization. He's supposed to be half Polish and half Greek. And he's described as being very stocky, big built. You know, He's got a black crew cut and very piercing dark eyes. And then, by the time he reappears in the On Her Majesty's Secret Service novel, he's radically altered his appearance, specifically to try and throw his enemies off track and kind of reinvent himself. So in that novel, he's now got sort of white, wavy hair, and he's cut off his earlobes even, because it's a further measure to try and distance himself from his previous appearance. But also he's trying to get recognized as being from this particular family bloodline. And one of the biological traits of this bloodline is that all the males are born without earlobes. So uh, we get this idea of radical appearance modification, which is another thing that comes out of military intelligence. That's a very real thing that agents undergo when they get inducted into uh, protection programs and such and deep cover operations. So that's probably some more of Fleming's past going into Blofeld there. Now, what else did I want to mention? I've got a few other things here. So in Dr. No, the original book and the movie, which was the first Bond movie, and also in Spectre, and also in Casino Royale, when I think about it, Daniel Craig's first movie, you've got these torture scenes where Bond is captured by his enemies and he undergoes this trauma. And it seems to, again, tie in with mind control programming, trauma-based, that we hear about MKUltra and such. Some quite extreme uh, torture scenes in those movies and, and books. And I remember back when we were lads reading the Ian Fleming novel, you know, we just loved the, the, the racy kind of uh, detail that was going into these torture scenes that really sort of turned us on at the time, immature as we were. What else do we have? In the movie Tomorrow Never Dies, you've got the villain there portrayed by Jonathan Price named Elliot Carver, and he owns this media corporation. He's like this news media mogul, and he's involved in the manufacturing of fake news. Go figure. (laughs) I remember that now. Yeah, he's actually creating stories and then reporting on it through his own media outlets. So that definitely ties into stuff we hear about in the real world, so to speak. A View to a Kill, the movie, you've got Christopher Walken's character, Max Zorin, who is portrayed as having been part of a Nazi genetics program. So he's been bred in a laboratory by this old German scientist. And it's all about keeping the 
genes of the Aryan race, so-called, coming out of the, the Nazis, alive. It's quite similar to the plot of the boys from Brazil, where Adolf Hitler has been cloned through his DNA. So that's an interesting one. In The Man with the Golden Gun, Bond is also the victim of brainwashing, mind control, this time at the hands of the communists, who were still the villains of the time, the Russians. At the very start of that book, we find that he's been missing for several months. After the culmination of the previous book, You Only Live Twice, where he goes after Blofeld in Japan, he goes missing and suffers amnesia and evidently gets abducted by the Russians and undergoes mind control programming. He then turns up back in London in the office of M, his boss in the Secret Service, and he tries to shoot him because he's been programmed to assassinate him. So again, it's the idea of Manchurian candidates. And he has to undergo this deprogramming routine where he has to get the brainwashing removed before he can go back into service. So again, we get this idea of mind control programming being a very real thing being portrayed through these stories. Live and Let Die, the book and the movie of that story, actually deal with the occult. It's the only Bond story where you get heavy leanings towards the world of the occult. And this is all about voodoo. It's set in New Orleans, stones throw away from you, I guess. <laughs> Indeed. In part, and also in Haiti. The island is called San Monique, but it's based on Haiti in the Caribbean, clearly. And voodoo is the uh, prominent sort of culture that's going on there. You have this character called Baron Samadhi, and he is portrayed as not entirely human. He's like this supernatural entity. So during the film, you discover that the villain, Mr. Big, Dr. Kananga, is hiding behind this voodoo culture and these superstitions that exist on this island in the Caribbean. And there's one point in the film where you find out that this voodoo ritual that's going on in a cemetery is actually a hoax. It's all theater. It's just being made to happen as a diversion. So you think they're kind of dismissing the idea of the occult there. But right at the very end of the film, Baron Samdi is supposed to have been killed earlier on when he falls into a coffin full of snakes. And at the very end of the movie, you see him riding the end of this train that Bond is on. And he's laughing maniacally as the train goes off into the distance. So it's presenting the idea that actually he's not dead after all, and actually he may not have been entirely human. So that's the only Bond adventure where we get these ideas of the occult and something beyond this physical realm. Well, the only other thing I wanted to mention, mate, is something that I've heard you address in the presentation that you did in Dallas, was it, a few weeks ago? Yes. When you addressed the question of the Mandela effect and how it seems to express itself through the movie Moonraker. Yes. And I think I remember you saying that Crow was quite dismissive of the idea of the Mandela effect overall, as I have been, but the one that absolutely fried his brains and he has no explanation for is when you revealed that Jaws's girlfriend, the larger-than-life villain Jaws, falls in love with this cute little blonde girl who looks like a schoolgirl. She's got her hair in pigtails. And there's this scene in the film that I can remember from going to see Moonraker in 1979 in the cinema, mm -hmm. where Jaws, the big joke about Jaws is that he's disfigured dentally, <laughs> and he's got these bloody metal teeth, steel teeth. That's his gimmick. And so he sees this young girl, and he smiles at her, and he's got these 
messed up metal teeth, you know, and she looks up at him and she smiles at him. And the big joke is that she's got dental braces and you see them when she smiles and you realize there's a bond between the two because they both got these dental issues and they fall in love as a result. Now, as you pointed out in your talk, every copy of Moonraker that you get, whether it's a DVD, whether you get the original VHS video, as I did, I ordered one on eBay because I wanted to prove that this scene has been digitally manipulated in recent times. And I thought, if I get a VHS copy, we'll see the braces there and that'll be the end to it. So I ordered a VHS copy. And we're talking about something that would have been manufactured in the 1980s, correct? Well, the film came out in 79. So yeah, the video would have been done in the 80s. And so I played the scene and there are no braces. Mm. What is going on? So th this one just completely blows my mind. I think with the Mandela effect generally so-called, I think it's a misnomer myself because I very well remember Nelson Mandela being released from jail in 1990. Remember it clearly. And most other examples that are given, I've been content to put down to people misremembering. So whether it's Laurel and Hardy, and he says, that's another fine mess you've got us into, Stanley, rather than another nice mess. The Berenstein Bears, Berenstein Bears, that doesn't really figure in the UK. Nobody knows who they were. But all these different examples you get, I think in many cases people are misremembering. But with that one, it just gets me. Because the scene makes no sense. If she doesn't have braces... It's not funny anymore. Yeah. How does that scene make any sense? Well, it was just a joke. It was just one big punchline. Yeah, it was a visual gag. And now it's not there. Which is actually very typical for the Roger Moore movies. They had a lot of jokes and punchlines for supposing to be a serious action film. Yeah. As you were saying earlier, Roger Moore's James Bond was a lot goofier in some aspects. And this is just another aspect of that. And it just isn't funny anymore. I mean, it's just, oh, how cute. They're falling in love. If you watched it today and didn't know any better. Yeah. But why are they falling in love? What's the connection? Right. The braces thing is the relation to him and his weapon of his teeth. You know, it's. Yeah. So, so am I misremembering that? Maybe I am, but it means just about everybody else in the world is misremembering it as well, because you won't find anyone that saw that film in 1979 that says, ah, she never had braces. Never. Right. And there you go. The cute and clever thing about the whole Mandela phenomenon is that it's a personal thing. Some people remember things one way, some people remember things the other. But this is the one that I always say, there's something to this, but I have absolutely no idea what it is. I will not speculate that it's some crazy multidimensional shift. I don't know, man. Is it a psyop beyond all belief that was put in place and somehow we were manipulated? I really just don't know. Now, Crow, as we were saying, was very dismissive of everything. And even though I got him on the Moonraker one, he remembers the character's name was Dolly, the girl. Yeah. He remembers Dolly having braces. And he was taken aback when I said, she doesn't have braces. She never had braces, according to what we see now. Mm. I got him on that, but it doesn't matter. He's still kind of dismissive of the whole thing. And understandably so, because what assumptions can you make now if indeed the Mandela effect, even just with this one incident, is a real thing. Who the heck knows? It could be some sort of extraordinary circumstances. And I think the honest answer is, I just don't know. I'm about the same. I would love to be able to put it down to people misremembering because things are just 
neater that way. <laughs> now, if if we get one of these that, that completely stumps us and that we feel is a very real thing, we've got some big questions to answer. And I have no clue what is going on here. I'm not really someone that goes for subjects like that. I'm a bit like Crow. I tend to be a bit more kind of real world in inverted commas, but I have no explanation for this. And like I say, if I'm misremembering it, then everyone else is as well. So I have no idea what's going on there. One thing that is interesting is that I've, I've seen lots of discussions online about this and lots of forums and stuff. And somebody dug up some original production notes from the film. So this is when Moonraker was in production and they had a list of characters and for the props, the wardrobe department, I guess, they had certain notes against the characters' names. And when you get to the character of Dolly, it says in the show notes that she has braces. It says, you know, glasses, pigtails, braces. So in the show notes, she's supposed to have braces. So why then does she appear in the final film without braces? And that's that's officially confirmed that that was in the notes. I saw the document. I don't have it to hand right now. I'll try and dig it out. I'll try and remember where I saw it. But I did see a, a document that purported to be original show notes from the set of Moonraker. And Dolly is said to have braces in it. Well, that is very interesting. I don't know what to make of this, man. Me neither. I'm pretty down to earth and realistic, too, with a lot of this stuff. And even though I like esoteric stuff... I don't tend to lean on it because most of it you can't prove. And again, with the Mandela effect, the cute concept about it is that it's a personal thing. Well, I remember it this way, even if you don't. Well, great, but there's nothing to analyze there. And I'd say that there's a same thing with all of us here, you, me, and Crow, and Wayne as well is actually, I would think, in that camp. We like to have things that we can analyze. Like when we call ourselves researchers, we mean this. We're going out and trying to find documents and things that we can prove to the best of our ability actually occurred. Sure. When you're talking about something like memory, this is just someone's word. The problem is, with this one incident and only this one incident, everyone remembers it that way. The girl had braces. And of course, it even makes sense in the context of the story. So what's going on there? Who knows? Are we supposed to think that in the original show notes, when they created the character, they thought, we'll give her braces, that gives her a connection to Jaws. Then they came to film the scene and they said, you know what? No, the braces don't work. Lose the braces. <laughs> Doesn't sound very plausible. No, not at all. Especially if that document is a real thing. If that's a valid document, if that really was from 78, 79, whenever they were filming the thing, well, I just can't explain that. I need to find that. If I can dig it out, I will email it across to you. I'll try and remember where I saw it. Yeah, it would be interesting to see even 79 isn't as long ago as, say, as the 1950s and 60s. Perhaps production people are still alive that could be contacted, hypothetically, to say, hey, what do you guys know? What can you tell us about this? Well, the actress that played Dolly, Branch Ravalek, she's still very much alive. I sure wish someone would ask her. <laughs> and if she's still a working actress, you probably hypothetically could get in touch with her. Mm, sure wish someone would. Well, Mark, what else do you want to do with the James Bond thing? Is there anything else you'd like to get out there about all this? I'm pretty much done here, mate. I think that's uh, what I wanted to get across. Just a couple of other observations about how the film's tied in with uh, the culture of the times. 
you had a couple of the films that were ripping off other movies that were going on at the time. So in The Man with the Golden Gun, which came out in 1974, that was right off the back of Bruce Lee's Enter the Dragon. And there was a whole host of martial arts movies that were coming out at that time. You also had the record by Carl Douglas, Kung Fu Fighting. So this idea of martial arts was in the public psyche. And so they built a scene into The Man with the Golden Gun set in China where Bond is in this martial arts school and he has to escape these villains. And then in Moonraker, Moonraker was set in outer space, of course, and it was coming off the back of Star Wars. And uh, it's the same year as Alien. There are a lot of movies set in space or with the idea of space. So uh, they tied that in with that. But the original Casino Royale is an interesting movie because that was done as a comedy spoof. And the story behind it is that Casino Royale was Ian Fleming's uh, first novel, not worst novel, first novel. It's actually the best. And there was a producer by the name of Charles K. Feldman that got the rights to film that movie before Harry Saltzman and Albert R. Broccoli steamed in and got the rights to the rest of the series. So there was this one novel that they couldn't film. And Charles Feldman uh, decided to film it, but he decided not to go up against the producers with a serious spy film, but to make it a farce, just an absolute ridiculous farce. And it came out in 1966. It was filmed in 66 and it's absolutely steeped in psychedelia. And it very much puts across ideas of a swinging London which was being unleashed at the time. And it was like the counterculture coming out of Britain and London. You've got all these very trippy sort of scenes and all these wild psychedelic colors that look like some kind of LSD trip. So they were kind of tying in with the culture of the times with that film. That was around the time that Pink Floyd were coming out, as we discussed earlier, with Sid Barrett as their original frontman. And they were pushing all this LSD-laden psychedelia, as many other bands were. And of course, you had the same thing going on in America at the time. So that film very much tied in with all of that. And it became a vehicle to push all these uh, counterculture ideas of the times. And then Casino Royale, there was legal cases and stuff. And the original Bond film production team eventually got the rights to film that. And that became the first Daniel Craig movie. And it was very different to the 60s original. You know, it's one of the grittier Bond films that introduced Daniel Craig. So it's just more ways in which the films have reflected the times in which they came out. I'll just leave that as a parting thought. And definitely keep that in mind if you happen to go back and look at this stuff. Think about the difference between the decades. It's something that Crow and I have discussed on multiple occasions, and it definitely seems to be a thing. The decade changes, a gear is switched, and all of a sudden, the culture is different. Reset. Yep. And I think that's quite obvious at this point. Sure. All right, Mark, thank you so very much for the time you've given us. I think we did quite an, a good job of breaking all this down, or at least you did. I didn't have as much to contribute as you did by far, but at least I'm familiar with the movies enough to keep up to a fair degree. Thank you so much for all of this, and I know we will be speaking again very soon. Why don't you take a moment to let everyone know where to find your work? Okay, well, my YouTube channel is youtube.com slash TV. I've got a whole load of my public talks and lectures up on there. I've also got YouTube versions of my various radio shows that you can catch up with there. And I do a Q&A video from time to time. My main website is markdevlin.co.uk. Most of my audio work resides on my Spreaker account. So if you go to Spreaker.com and just input Mark Devlin, you'll find my page there. All my radio shows are there, my interviews. 
and stuff of that nature. I've got three books out that I just want to mention, two volumes of Musical Truth. So volume one came out in 2016, volume two was 2018. They cover everything I've come to comprehend about the true nature of the corporate music industry and the way that's used for mind control and societal programming and such. And my latest book is a novel, which I had great fun putting together. It's called The Cause and the Cure. It's on the surface, a crime thriller set in my home city of Oxford, England in 1990. So it's full of nostalgic detail from 30 years ago. But beneath the surface, you get all kinds of symbolism, metaphor, spiritual teachings and such. So it's coded and it's layered. And I think people will have a lot of fun deciphering what I've put into that. So they're all on Amazon. But if people want to hit me up directly, you can email me at markdevlinuk at gmail.com and I can mail those books out anywhere. And I just want to thank you for getting me on, Jason. I heard you talking all about Star Wars and Doctor Who and such with Wayne. And like I said at the start, I know very little about those shows, but I know a hell of a lot about James Bond. So I reached out to you and I thought that if I could offer some insights into the Bond series, it would tie in very well with what you and Wayne have been putting out about how culture creation gets done. So I think we've achieved that today. Yeah, I think the last point we can make about this is that James Bond has always been portrayed as the very stereotypical male character. He's tall, dark, and handsome. He's rugged and dangerous and strong and intelligent and all that. And we've seen the exact opposite being portrayed for quite some time in mainstream media of the male. It's all pushing the strong female and the strong female is basically acting like a male. It's not even that the strong female is being very feminine. That female is being very masculine. You want to close with anything on that? Not really, except to say that once Daniel Craig bows out, by the time we get a new James Bond, it wouldn't surprise me if it's a cross-dresser. <laughs> it just wouldn't. Right. It's almost anything goes at this point. Even though these movies and shows are losing money like crazy, they just don't care. They're just going to keep pushing it. Well, that's right. And that's it. That's it, man. This comment is intended to be humorous. Nobody should get offended by it. But Bond will probably be black, Jewish, lesbian, transgendered, and disabled the next time we see him. <laughs> and a vegan. And a vegan. Yeah, we got to get that in there, too. <laughs> <laughs> well, I had a great time doing this with you, man. Thank you so very much. And we'll see you next time, folks. 